Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and and are satisfied, be careful you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery." Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God. And his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers, thrusting out all your enemies before you as the Lord said. In the future... When your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. The word of the Lord. Man, it is uh, so good to be back with you, Northeast. Uh, my name is Mark, a friend of Tyler's, friend of the church. And Tyler uh, called me a couple months ago and said, hey, we're doing this thing where there's kind of like a Bible college class and you get a little more time and I, I'm in. 
I'm in. And then to walk in here and see all these tables set out here. These are the geeks. For me, that's a compliment to you, by the way. Uh, so Tyler said uh, we want to do like one Bible book uh, in a little less than an hour, and he's going to do Genesis. He called me then a little later and he said, hey, I took two weeks for the book of Genesis. Can you do two books in one hour? <laughs> so either he's four times smarter than me or Genesis has four times more material. And I was talking to a guy before services earlier this morning, and he goes, he goes yeah, Tyler, he just got this big old head. And, and then he heard how it sounded. He goes, no, I, don't, I mean it in the, in the best way. Like, he's got all this knowledge. And he says, sometimes I tell Tyler, like, you just got to speak a little redneck to me, bro. And so I'm going to speak a little redneck today, but also go a little bit deep. So if you're new to Northeast, and maybe the Bible is like an old book, or maybe you've never really read it before, I think you're going to really enjoy There's Some of it that might go over your head, that's Okay. I'm going to get the cookies down on the bottom shelf where it's important, and then I'm going to dig a little deeper for those of you who are going, give me more. So if you want more, there is a QR code that you can scan, and it's going to give this whole PDF document with lists and charts and Bible graphs. You're going to, like, geek out. The rest of you, if you just want the lower shelf cookies, you're going to get that too. But we are talking about two Bible books today. Exodus and Deuteronomy. Now, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books make up what the Jews call the Torah. It's a Jewish word for law. And the Torah is not only is the first five books, for many Jews it's the only scripture there is. But for all of us, it is an artistic masterpiece. If you've ever gotten to see a Torah scroll, they're hand done. They're only hand done. And you can buy one for about a hundred grand because you're paying a professional scribe for a year of his labor. I used to take my classes when I taught back in the day. I would take my classes to the local synagogue. That little synagogue, Joplin, Missouri, they had five Torah scrolls. I, like, I'm a Bible geek, and to be able to actually touch one, every time the rabbi would, would pull one out and unroll it, I never let my students help the rabbi unroll the scroll. That was me. They didn't deserve that. <laughs> one of the scrolls I'd never seen, because they have, these, uh, they have a, a cloth over it, and they literally, when they pulled that big cloth cover over, they called it undressing the Torah as if it was a human being. It's like mad respect. And they would take the Torah scroll and march it around the synagogue, and all the congregants would kiss their songbook and then touch the edge of the Torah. So we're talking about reverent. Us standing and reading a passage of scripture is coming a little bit closer to that level of reverence that they have for the word. But one year, this stupid freshman, he didn't know any better. He goes, hey, can we see the Holocaust survivor Torah scroll? I know. I'm mortified. And the rabbi said, yes. And I said, I'll hold it. Because I wanted to see that piece of art that's this historic survivor of the Holocaust. I love the Torah scroll. And Exodus, you might think, well, why are we not doing Exodus and Leviticus? Well, because Leviticus is boring. You don't want to even look at that. <laughs> Have you read it? You know what's in Leviticus? Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And by the way, it is the first Bible book that little Jewish boys memorize. 
And you're thinking, oh, no, I saw that side. But think about it. If you have ADHD and you have a book that's full of animals, knives, fire, and blood, like that's your go-to, bro. So that's why they loved it. But the reason we're putting Exodus and Deuteronomy together is Exodus is the book where we get the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy, the name of the book of Deuteronomy actually means Deutero, second, Namos, law. It's the second rendition of the law. So it's a bunch of repetition. So I am not going to spend as much time in Deuteronomy as I am in uh, Exodus. But the passage you just heard read, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, actually, actually uh, Barbara did a great job reading it. She read much more than that. But 4 through 6 is what they call the Shema, the Hebrew word that means listen or hear. And that's the first word. Shema Yisrael, or hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Sounds like this in Hebrew. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad. V'chavta, Adonai Ka, v'bekol lavavka, v'bekol nafshaka, v'bekol moedika. With all your heart, love God with all your heart, with all, that's your emotional self. With all your soul, that's your life force, your energy. And with all your <laughs> everything, meaning your physical self, including your house, your bank account, your wallet, your cars, your toys. Love God with everything. That was so important to the Jews. And if you've ever seen a rabbi that has a phylactery on, it's a little box on their forehead and on their left arm, that comes out of this passage. This says, keep the word of God on your heart or on your mind and on your heart. That's why they, they did that literally. <laughs> they made boxes. You know what's in the box? A little scroll with the Shema written out on it. If you've ever been in a Jewish home and they have a mezuzah on the edge of their doorpost, kind of put it at an angle, what's in the mezuzah is the scroll of the Shema. So Deuteronomy is a huge, that is their John 3.16. So Deuteronomy and Exodus is the story of Moses, specifically the law that Moses gave. And we begin in Exodus with the birth of Moses. His mama gave birth to him during a mandate for infanticide, where they were killing all the Hebrew baby boys. And mom put him in a basket, he floats down the Nile, and as fate would have it, Pharaoh's daughter picks him up and raises him in the palace. And you go clear to the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, 32, that's the death of Moses. Now, I don't think Moses wrote about his own death, obviously, but the, it's the whole story. There's an appendix of his death uh, on the writings that he did in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Think of it this way. Exodus is more like his biography. Deuteronomy is more like his diary. Exodus tells the adventures of the ten plagues. Like, this is Hollywood-worthy, Charlton Heston-worthy Ten Commandments, great narrative story of this liberation uh, from Egypt. Whereas Deuteronomy is a series of speeches. So think about putting five of Tyler's sermons together and just reading that. I thought I would get more response than that. Some people would be happy about that. Some, anyway, that's Exodus and Deuteronomy. To, to make this crystal clear, so if this is your very first time in church, this will make sense. This is not, this is not hard. We're going to get a little deeper, but for right now, let's just start here, the who. Who is the who 
of Exodus? Well, the hero of the narrative is Moses. And he dies at the end of Deuteronomy without going into the promised land. Now, why did God not allow Moses into the promised land? Because he sinned. What was his sin? Hmm. This seems a little harsh. I'll just be honest. He struck a rock. Twice God told him, you're in the desert, people need water. And so miraculously, God provided water by Moses striking the rock and the water came out of the rock. The first time God says strike the rock, he struck the rock, no harm, no foul. The second time God specifically said, speak to the rock. And Moses struck the rock. I, I don't know if I can psychoanalyze a dead man, but it feels to me like Moses was getting ahead of God. Like Moses was taking credit for the miracle. Like Moses was showing his power and not letting all power and glory to go, go to God. That may seem like a minor infraction to not go into the promised land, but God was serious. You don't get ahead of me. Now, because Moses never got in the promised land, this whole narrative leaves you wanting more. You, you ever seen an episode of Yellowstone and like cliffhanger at the end? You go, okay, there's got to be more. There's got, there's got to be more. Well, you read Exodus and Deuteronomy, you go, but he's supposed to be our savior, but he didn't even get in the promised land. There's, there's got to be more. And the more, here's the word that we're going to focus on today. I love this word. Recapitulation. That's when something gets started way back when, but it's incomplete. Ladies, you remember second grade? Three-ring binder? Little Bobby over there, he looked, he's just adorable, he's cute. And so you write, me and Bobby. And then you make a list of your unborn children, like you named them already, anyone, yeah? That's, you grow up, you get a husband, and you have children, that's recapitulation. Or, or guys, you're out, just, just you, out in the driveway shooting hoops, and in your own mind, you, you win a championship for UK, and you're like, a buzzer beater shot, three point, yeah, crowd goes wild. That's recapitulation. Like, then you grow up, and you get on a team, and you actually play basketball, recapitulation. It's the fulfillment. What is the fulfillment by the end of the Bible? What is the fulfillment of Moses? It is, well, this should be fairly obvious, It is Jesus. And I'm going to show you the multiple connections between Jesus and, or Moses and Jesus in the New Testament. Okay, the why. The why. Uh, the why is freedom. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt. They needed to be rescued. But some of you realize that that can't be the end of the story. Because you are politically free, socially free, but you're still in bondage. Some to a chemical, uh, some to an emotion, some to a sin, an addiction. We still have our bondage, so that, that can't be the end of the story. How? How are we going to reach freedom? It's not just by Moses and walking through the sea on dry ground. It is through the law. Specifically, ten laws, we call them the Ten Commandments, two tables of stone. Lest you minimize this, these ten laws still today are the foundation of every legal system in every civilized society in the world. Like what Moses did was, uh, 
Amazing. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Where? Where do you meet God? Well, you meet God in a tent, a very specific tent. They called it the tabernacle. And there are over a dozen chapters of Exodus devoted to the details of how to create this tent. The colors, the size, the width, the depth, the, the, the altar, the, the candelabra, the table of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, all in, like boring, meticulous detail. And you look at that and you just go, well, that can't be it because the tent later by Solomon was made with brick and mortar into a temple. And the temple later was destroyed. There's got to be more to the story than just this. Moses is recapitulated in Jesus. Freedom is recapitulated in grace. Wherever you are, again, this may be your very first time in church or maybe you're watching online to see if this is the kind of church you want to buy into. What is taught around here is the grace of Jesus Christ that you could be forgiven from your sins. That broken relationship, God forgives you for that. And in Jesus, there may even be reconciliation in that. That child that you don't even know where they are for sure. There can be reconciliation, but your, your only hope is through the grace of Jesus Christ. The Ten Commandments became 613 commands by the end of Deuteronomy. That's a lot of commands. You know how many Jesus reduced it to? It's not even an accurate statement that Jesus reduced them to two because this was common knowledge among the rabbis. A, a lawyer, which is a rabbi who is an expert in Deuteronomy, he comes up to Jesus and says, uh, Jesus, what do I have to do to gain eternal life? And knowing that lawyers would rather talk than listen, Jesus said, well, how do you read it? And the lawyer said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. That's it, two, two commands. And Jesus is the embodiment of these two commands. The tent, and this may blow your mind. We're gonna, we're gonna look at the different parts of the tabernacle today. I'll show you pictures of the tabernacle. Every element of the tabernacle is actually embodied in Christ. It was as if the blueprint of the tabernacle was to prepare you to see and know and meet the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is where we are headed today. The big story of the Exodus, got a lot of details. You probably have a map that looks something like this in your Bible where they leave Egypt, they go across the Red Sea, they wander in the desert for 40 years, they get the, uh, down in Sinai, they, they get the Ten Commandments. We're not going to get bogged down on the details of the story. Nor are we going to get bogged down in the theology of the story. I'm going to be very brief with this. There are several bits of theology that big ideas that whether you're a Christian, a Muslim, uh, uh, whatever religious background you are, even, even atheists are struggling with the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And in the story of Moses and the Pharaoh, the question is really about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Because the Bible said God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So some theologians say, yeah, God chooses who will be saved and who will be damned. 
God opens some people's hearts and God closes other people's hearts. Is that what you believe? Because that is not what Exodus actually says. I, I took a look at all the different places where Exodus uses the words hardening and heart. Now, many times the hardening of the heart was God. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But just as many times it is Pharaoh that hardened his own heart. Here's the data, half and half. And so the conclusion that I come to is that your relationship with God is something of a dance. My wife and I took ballroom dancing lessons. We were horrible at it, and it was her fault. <laughs> and she will admit that it's her fault, and the problem was not that we didn't have the moves, that we didn't have the... The problem was she wouldn't let me lead. And if you don't let the, the leader lead... You're going to step on each other's toes. We, just two days ago, we started dancing again. I said, you're still doing it. And so we stopped dancing because she keeps stepping on my toes because she wants to be the one who leads. In your relationship with God, some of you have stepped on God's toes because you're not letting him lead. And in every relationship, they're all symbiotic. They're reflective. So, for example, let's say you're face-to-face -face with a friend and Maybe they're kidding around, but they say something that hurts your feelings. So you return with a snide comment, kind of give them the cold shoulder. And they return with something that's really cruel. So you go slash their tires. <laughs> and, and, it, and then they go, you know, steal your dog. But before long, you're back to back and not face to face. Relationships are reciprocal, even with God. The reason I'm telling you that is some of you have your back to God and you're saying, why did God turn his back on me? If God turned his back on you, if that's the way it feels, it's because he has responded to you. And the, the good news is, if you turn towards God, he will turn towards you. And, and then you could turn a little more towards God and he could turn a little more towards you. And before long, you will be face to face with God. And that's what he has always wanted, even for Pharaoh. The, the second theological question that comes up is this whole idea of election. That God has chosen some and others he didn't choose. But here's what we know. God chose the Jews not because he loved the Jews more than other people. God chose not to give the law to the Jews, but to give the law of God through the Jews. You're here right now because God loves you, but he doesn't just love you. He wants to love through you. And that's why our church, Northeast Christian Church, is the Love the Ville Church. Because this one idea of election, he has chosen us not because he wants to put his blessings in our bucket, but he wants us to be a funnel through which his blessings can flow. And we're going to see in this whole lesson, grace versus law. Law is grace, but it's an impossible grace because we're not capable of keeping the law. So we need the forgiveness of God so that the law of God becomes a blessing again. And as we live according to God's standards, we are saved by grace to be able to live the rules that would be healthy for us, for our neighbors, and for our children. So let's start with this. Jesus as the new Moses. 
If I were to ask you to compare, like side by side, Moses, Jesus, how many rows could you put in those two columns? You got Moses, let's say Moses gave the law, okay? And then you got Jesus, Jesus also gave the law. So that's one row. How many rows could you come up with? Moses gave or instituted the Passover. Jesus is the Passover, so that's two rows. How many rows could you come up with? Moses gave water from the rock. Jesus is the rock. So that's another row. How many rows could you come up with? Watch this. This is mind-blowing. So for, for those of you who are new here, this is, this is where it's a little bit overwhelming. But don't worry. Just scan the QR code, and you can have all of this right in front of you if you care. If you don't, that's okay. 19 similarities between Moses and Jesus. That's just mind-boggling. And the reason I bring that up is God loves the game of hide-and-seek. And, seek. and he, he's, he's putting Easter eggs in the biblical text for you to find in Jesus. But all of the Old Testament, the Exoduses, the Leviticuses, the Deuteronomies, are not so that you would know Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, but so that you would see Jesus. And the, the, the deeper you go in your faith, that like you might be sitting up in the balcony and you go, man, I, I think I have a Bible in my house. That's okay. You will get to see Jesus. And the deeper you go, and some of you guys here are going, like, I have read the Hebrew text. Good for you. But you've never, you've never plumbed the depths of it. So let's just say there's a person way up in the balcony who doesn't know the Bible at all. And someone down here that, like, you're a Bible scholar, legitimate Bible scholar. Let me, let me compare the two of you. It's like both of you are standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. And you say, I'm going to long jump into the Grand Canyon. You're going to jump across. Well, neither of you are going to make it, right? But one of you at the bottom, a mile and a half down, is 20 feet farther. Are you going to brag about that? <laughs> so we're, we're not saying the people at the table are better Christians. We all need the grace of Jesus. We all need help getting across the chasm. But what we're saying is, Every step you take is a, is a delightful game of God where he's just going, find me, find me, find me. He wants a relationship with you that is authentic. And so all of these Easter eggs here are to delight you, not to overwhelm you. So wherever you are, enjoy the journey. Here's one of the comparisons. That Jesus is the Passover that Moses instituted. Now maybe you know the story. The 10th plague, and this is the last one. God says, this is it. We're finishing with this one. The death of the firstborn son. Did God want to kill the firstborn son? No. No, but that's going to be the punishment for rejecting. He wanted everyone to get a pass. And the pass came by faith. When you killed a lamb, then you're going to roast a lamb and eat the lamb as a family. That's the meal. And then you're going to take the blood of the lamb and you're going to paint it on the doorpost of your house. This is all in Exodus. And any, any home that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the angel of death comes by and passes over that home. Hence, it's called the Passover. For 1,400 years, they have celebrated the Passover at the time of Jesus. And the night before he dies, he gathers his disciples, the 12 in particular, into an upper room. And like every other Jew all over the world, they have the same elements on the table, the matzah bread, the unleavened bread. 
the four cups of wine, the lamb of the, that's been slain for Passover. All of them have it all over the world. And Jesus looks at the table and says, guys, see this table? Our people have been doing this meal for 1,400 plus years. And everything you see on the table is me. I'm the lamb. I'm the bread. I'm the wine. Now, some of you are just sitting back there. Yes, Jesus said that. Good for Jesus. No, you're not getting it. This is an outrageous claim. Okay, so to help put this in perspective, pick a president. I don't care if it's your favorite president or your least favorite president. Pick a president. Got it in your mind? Okay, I'm going to be that president for a minute. This is make-believe. As your president, you know, people talk about Abraham Lincoln as a liberator of people in America. Listen, he was great. I am way better, like I am way more important than Abraham Lincoln. Even if you voted for him, you hate him right now. And that George Washington guy, I know they say he's the father of the nation, but who's your daddy? I'm your daddy. <laughs> That's going to go over about as well as a hot dog at Hanukkah. <laughs> There's no way anybody gets away with that. And yet Jesus, it, through recapitulation, is making these out outrageous claims, crucifiable claims unless it's true. So Jesus is saying that he is the Passover that Moses instituted in the moment of the Passover. He claims to be the manna. Moses provided manna, that bread in the wilderness. He says, I am the manna. This claim in John 6 comes right after feeding of the 5,000. Day before he feeds 5,000 families. Of course, people come back for seconds. You would too. And he preaches the worst sermon of his life. You're silent. Here's my explanation. He starts with thousands and thousands of people. And at the end of the sermon, everyone has gotten offended and walked away except for 12. He says, you guys going to leave me too? And Peter, in a mo he's not known for his brilliance. But he was, he was spot on when he said, where am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus is claiming to be the manna, the bread of God that sustains us. He claims that he is the rock. Now, we talked earlier about the rock that Moses struck twice. <laughs> there's, this, there's this rabbinic argument that rabbis love to debate and argue and tussle about. But there was a, a rabbinic argument in the, in the literature where they were saying, okay, Moses struck the rock twice and the, the rock gave water two times. Miraculous rock or not? Yes, you'd agree? It's a, like rocks don't give water, so it's a miraculous rock. What is more likely that there would be two different rocks that gave water or that the one rock that gave water also could follow the Israelites in the wilderness. And that's where we came up with, for the first time, rock and roll. No, it's not. That's, that's not. It's a... This was a rabbinic debate of the rock. They believed that, some rabbis believed the rock actually followed the Israelites through the desert. And Paul, you may have never seen this before, Paul plays off of that belief in 1 Corinthians 10 where he said, Jesus is the rock that followed them in the wilderness. Isn't that incredible? He's just playing with this idea of a moving rock. Moses gave the law, Jesus fulfills the law. 
This is Jesus uh, in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill the law. What does he mean fulfill the law? It's not just that he obeyed the law. It's not just that he died for the punishment of the law. He is the law. And if you follow Jesus, you're you're not following 613 commands. You're following a person that embodies the will and way of God to make your life better. Jesus claims all that. This This is Mount Sinai, by the way. It's a rugged Wilderness, And if you look here, uh, this is a monastery in the wilderness of Sinai. They found in that monastery, it's about 100, I think 150, 200 years ago, they found the oldest copy of the, of the Bible, a complete New Testament. And they call it Codex Sinaiticus because it was found at Sinai. You know where they found it? It's from the 4th century. Oldest, oldest copy of the New Testament we have. It was in a pile of papers that were to be used as kindling to heat their fire. Man, I'm glad they found that. What a, what a loss that would have been. This is an older law still than Moses. This is called a stele. It's a big stone, 7 feet, 4 inches tall. You can go to the Louvre and see it in Paris should you care to. This is, uh, this is as Hammurabi. I'll try to expand this here. <laughs> this is Hammurabi right here. And what he is receiving from the God is a staff and a ring representing power and authority. Below... You can't really see it in this photo, but below this are 282 laws. This is from 1755 B.C. Hammurabi was a real person. And the interesting thing about these laws is they were actually the first human laws that stated that a person was innocent until proven guilty. Hammurabi was so important that he has put on this plaque. This is Pharaoh here. This is Moses here. And this cat in the middle is Hammurabi. This, the reason I'm showing you this plaque is this freeze is on the wall of a courthouse of the Supreme Court of the United States of America. We we recognize his significant contribution. This is, I just want to show you several of his laws so you kind of get a feel for the laws that preceded Moses. If a man bring an accusation against a man and charge him with a capital crime, it cannot prove it. He, the accuser, shall be put to death. And that's where we got innocent until proven guilty. Even penalty for false accusations. See if you recognize this one. This is number 196. If a man destroy the eye of another man, they shall destroy his eye. Which is, say it out loud, eye for an eye. That's straight out of the Bible. So what Moses said in eye for an eye was not new. It was actually 300 years old. This is where it gets different though. These three laws describe the same crime 
but three different punishments. Because depending on who you were and who you committed a crime against would determine the severity of your punishment. So if you're rich, you are punished less. If you're a Babylonian, Hammurabi's Babylonian, you're punished less. If you're a man, you're punished less. If you're free, you're punished less. But what the law of God did, and this was a game changer in human history, not only were you innocent until proven guilty, but everyone, every man, every woman, every child, free, slave, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, were treated as if they were created in the image of God. That is what differentiates the law of Moses from every other legal system in the world, and it still works today. There are other similarities between Moses and Jesus. This, this one I find really fascinating. Both of them fasted for 40 days. Jesus, after he was baptized at the Jordan River, and by the way, he was baptized at the exact spot on the Jordan River where Israel passed through to become a nation to enter the promised land. Do you understand the, the symbolism of that? And then he goes into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days. He's not only representing Moses, but at this point, Jesus is embodying all of Israel. He is Israel. Now, how long was Israel in the desert? Yeah, not 40 days, but 40 years. So you might say, well, that's not the same. 40 years, 40 days, not the same. Hmm. Question. How long should Israel have been in the wilderness? How long does it take to walk with old women and little babies and crutches? How long does it take to walk from Egypt to the promised land? The answer is 40 days. And in fact, they got to the edge of the promised land in 40 days. And they sent 10 spies in. 10 were bad and two were good. Some of you remember that old song. And they listened to the 10 spies who said, no, the walls are too high. Their biceps are too big. Their cities are, are, are too thick. We cannot take the land. And God said, what, you, you think you can't? Well, you're right, you can't take it. But you don't think I can take the land? Okay, take another lap. In fact, you can take a lot of laps for 40 years until all y'all die and a new generation that has faith, are going to enter the promised land. What Jesus did in the wilderness, in his own temptation, he was not only recapitulating Israel, he was showing you what it was supposed to be like in the beginning. There's so much thick connection between Moses and Israel and Jesus. Here's another one. There was a point in the desert. I live in a desert, by the way. I live in Phoenix, Arizona. We have diamondbacks. Y'all got these water moccasins, child's play. The, I mean, these snakes are big. And everyone I've run across, uh, I do a lot of hiking, everyone I've run across, they're always in a bad mood. I, I don't understand why, why every day is Monday for them, but they just, they're mean. They bite you, you're in trouble. So these vipers were biting the Israelites. God, God sent a curse on them for their disobedience and their unbelief. And Moses pleaded with God, give us a solution. Give us a healing. He said, okay, here, here's the healing. Make a serpent out of bronze and put it on a pole and stick it up. And anybody who has faith to look at the serpent, that person will be healed. That is quoted in the New Testament. Look at the reference. What comes right after this 
reference. For God so loved the world. The serpent, the bronze serpent in the wilderness on a pole, that was a picture of what would come. And it's found in the person of Jesus. Here, here's another one. Moses built the tabernacle. And the tabernacle obviously becomes a temple when Solomon built it out of brick and mortar. But Jesus is the temple. He said to himself, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. He was talking about his body. Now I want you to see how rich this symbolism is. Because if you've never loved the Old Testament, I'm going to try to make you love it now. I've already said, this is boring. The descriptions of how to build this tabernacle. Here is the altar of sacrifice. Here's the laver of ceremonial washing. Here is the holy place and the holy of holies. Zoom in and you see the candelabra, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. That's all that was in the holy place. In the holy of holies, all that was in there was this box. They called it the Ark of the Covenant. You've seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark, so you know everything about this biblically. Boring. Dozens of chapters are boring until you begin to look at the boring through the lens of Jesus and you start to see some amazing connections. John 1.14, the word of God became flesh and made his dwelling, that is the word for tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. He is the place that we meet God. And Jesus knew that. He, he said in John 2, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days and then you start seeing specifics in the tabernacle book of Hebrews has rich symbolism it's a hard book to read because of the rich symbolism but there's so many easter eggs in there I would challenge you just go play in the book of Hebrews for a little bit see what you can find because it will say when Christ came as high priest so he is the high priest of the tabernacle of good things that are now already here he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, not part of creation. It, it's him. He is the tabernacle. He did not enter by means of blood and goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood. So here we see in this passage that Jesus is the high priest. He is the tabernacle itself, and he is the sacrifice that cleanses our sin. Tabernacles is a cool illustration. Here's another one. Hebrews, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that's the holy of holies, that's the inner sanctum that only the high priest went and only once a year, we enter by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, I'm going to back up to the picture here so you can see, get the, see the curtain again. It's this curtain here. What is that curtain? According to the book of Hebrews, that curtain is his body. And when the curtain was torn open, when, when Jesus was crucified, God tore the curtain from top to bottom because that symbolized the tearing of Jesus' own body, which we now celebrate in communion. This is the replica of the table of showbread. By the way, if you go to Jerusalem, there is a museum. It's more than a museum. It's right by the Western Wall. 
they have reproduced all of the elements of the temple. They are ready to rebuild it, which would mean World War III because right now uh, the uh, Muslims are in control of the Temple Mount. But Jesus said of the showbread uh, that he is the bread of life. He also said, I am the light of the world. And this is the candelabra from the original temple in Jerusalem. Now, this particular image is in Rome. If you go to Rome today and you enter into the forum, you go from the Colosseum into the forum, you will see an archway. It is one of three triumphal arches that still exist from the first century. And this particular triumphal arch is a celebration of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And from the temple, they took the candelabra. This is what it actually looked like, and this is the replica on display outside of Jerusalem. And you, again, you could go to Jerusalem today. If you look straight past the candelabra, you will see the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is on the Temple Mount, and right down here is the Western Wall. This is real, but it's also the light of the world. There's another element in the tabernacle that is the altar of incense. This is very exciting for me because in Revelation, it describes the new altar of incense. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Because Jesus is the temple and because you are the body of Christ, what I've just described is not just him, but what we get to be a part of. And as you lift your prayers to God, God hears you in as tangible as a way as he smelled the incense in the ancient tabernacle of the Jews. And that's, what it, that's the altar of incense and what it looks like today. This is, of course, the Ark of the Covenant. You, you know from Raiders of the Lost Ark. That place between the cherubim. They called that the Shekinah glory of God. It was from here that God's word emanated. On top of the ark is called the mercy seat. This is the mercy seat. And they called it the mercy seat because that's where the priests sprinkled the blood. And the blood of the bulls and goats cleansed people from their sins. And that was the location of forgiveness. Again, only once a year because this was in the most holy place. And only the high priest. But now we have access to the mercy seat every day, all day long. I'm going to show you the passage where this comes from. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, and that is the term translated mercy seat. Jesus is now the location of our forgiveness. Whether well, if you move on, on to Deuteronomy, we've already looked at the John 3:16 of Deuteronomy. Shema Yisrael, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, and mind and strength. We, we, we've seen this prophecy that Deuteronomy says, he'll, the Lord will raise up a prophet like me. But I'm going to show you one last quotation from Deuteronomy. 
It's in Hebrews 13, 5. 31, this means it's Moses uh, described is right near the time of his death. And he's warning Joshua, reminding Joshua of a promise that God made. I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, in, in English, uh, we just have this, this one word, this one negative, never. But in the original language, it wasn't one negative. It was actually five negatives. We don't even know how to translate this. It's so rich, so deep, so intense. We don't know how to translate it. I would translate it something like this. Never will I leave you. No, not. Nunca, niet. We don't even have enough English words to talk about how deliberate God is about his intensity, I will not leave you. And the way we know he will not leave us is because Jesus, our Passover, is a weekly celebration that we take at this church because we want to be reminded, heaven and earth is gonna pass away. I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. He will be here with you. So if you're going through the ringer right now, I know we've, we've dug deep into the biblical text, I get it. But God is here, and this is the important thing for you to see, that he's not just the new Moses, he is the Passover, he is the temple, he is the sacrifice, he's your forgiveness. So as we take these emblems together, I just wanna pray over us and allow God to engage us and remind us that he is present. And if you turn towards him, he will turn towards you face to face. And you, through Jesus, have access into the very holy of holies of God. Let, let's go there now. Holy Father, this is sacred space. We are the temple of God, the holy place of God. You're here. It's not holy because we're here, it's holy because you're here. And as we take this bread, we take this juice, we're reminded that the angel of death will pass over us as you'll take us through the wilderness and you will never, 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 never leave us. And for that, we give you thanks and praise.